One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Holy shit, the COP26 conference just wrapped. The biggest climate conference in the world. Were you following this shit? Did you see what happened? <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I mean, like you, you, you were not following it. Not really. And that's okay. Because nothing happened. I mean, I wasn't following it either, but I will totally tell you what happened, uh, having done zero research, and I'm willing to bet that I get it right. Uh, a bunch of world leaders got together committed to a series of photo ops and they committed to a series of new targets for reducing emissions and greening things up and they won't hit those targets. Okay. Spoiler. Yeah. They're not going to hit those targets. And even if they did hit those targets, the targets themselves are insufficient. If they actually weren't fucking lying and they hit those targets in the timeframes that they committed to, we would still be warming the planet past the point of no return the point at which a cascade of catastrophic consequences will be triggered. That is what happened at the COP26 conference, uh, guaranteed. And you did not need to be paying attention to climate change news to know that. Everybody knows that. But, you know, by all means, more climate change coverage. You know, let's keep reporting the news of these performances anyhow. That is incredibly reductive. There are many other types of climate coverage out there. There are several other formats. And I find those two to be predictable, uh, obvious, and futile. And that is why you have not heard very much climate coverage on Canada Land at all. Because that's what I think. Today, you will hear from somebody who completely disagrees with me about all that. She thinks that there is a point to telling climate stories in the news. In fact, she's dedicated like a pretty large portion of her life to telling them. She feels very strongly that this company, that Canada Land, needs to be telling these stories. And she happens to be the new senior producer of this show. So her opinion about that matters. But she has one large obstacle to contend with, and that obstacle is me. And I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be a dick about this. There is no formal editorial policy here against doing climate change coverage here at Canada Land. It's just that like on this show, on the show that I host, it's just going to be really hard for that coverage to be good unless there's buy-in for me. And that's true of any show. If the host doesn't care about the story, even if they're trying to, even if they want it to be good, you need buy-in from your host if the coverage is going to be any good. 
if we can't turn this stuff into a good podcast, we're not going to do it. Sarah Larniuk, our new senior producer, thinks that we can make good podcasts telling stories about climate change. She thinks there is a point to doing that. She thinks that we need to do that. And she thinks that she can convince me of that. Wait for it. Jean Gameshi threatened to sue me if uh, the Toronto Star published what I had learned about him. And they published it anyhow. And he didn't sue. Marine Land threatened to sue Canada Land if we went ahead with a story about them. We published anyhow. And they did not sue. Who else? The, the, the billionaire Irving family out in New Brunswick, their news organization threatened to sue us if we went ahead with our story about them and we did it anyhow and they didn't sue. And of course, the WE organization, again and again, hiring the most high-powered libel lawyers in the country, lawyer after lawyer, threat after threat, that they would sue us if we published what we learned to be true about them through our investigations. They promised us that they would sue us. Well, we published anyhow, and they never sued us. But now we are getting sued. We're getting sued by Kean Bexty in a completely unrelated separate matter. I've spoken about that. Uh, former rebel correspondent Kean Bexty is suing us. And we're now in the process of putting together our defense over that. And as you may have read in the news, we are now being sued over the White Saviors, our podcast series about the WE organization. But we're not being sued by the WE organization. And we're not being sued by Craig Kilberger. And we're not being sued by Mark Kilberger. No, we're being sued by their mom, Teresa Kilberger. Now, we are vigorously defending our journalism once again. And if you want to know more about what we have to say about this lawsuit, uh, we put out a statement that you can read on Canada Land's Twitter account. But what I can tell you is it's not fun. It's not something we try to make happen. We're not looking to get sued. It's not fun to be sued. But, you know, people have tried to cheer me up and they say, you know, like, look, there's a bright side to this. I mean, think about this. This is great for crowdfunding. You can go out and crowdfund on this. Well, I am telling you about this. That's true. But I'm not asking you to pay for our legal battles. I'm asking you to pay us so that we can keep publishing. I want you to pay us for our journalism. And we have insurance. We'll take care of the defense of that journalism. But the important thing is that we will not be intimidated. We will not stop covering the WE organization, the Kielbergers, and everything else. We have limited bandwidth. These types of conflicts take a lot of time and resource. And the important thing is that this does not get in the way of our work here, investigating, reporting, analyzing, discussing, making podcasts, and doing journalism. And that is what I am asking you for your support with. The important thing here is that thanks to you, we are making Canada land back. We hit that goal. That is tremendous. We are going to have a permanent commitment to creating Indigenous-led journalism about Indigenous stories, and that's going to become a part of this program here at Canada Land. And now we're going towards our next goal, which is Shortcuts en Français, s'il vous plaît, with Emily Nicolas. And we have a long way to go if we're going to hit that goal in this crowdfunding season, which is coming to a conclusion soon. So I'm going to ask you for your support for that. 
go to canadaland.com slash join. Click on the link in your show notes. You can immediately get Canadaland Premium and all of our shows, premium versions, ad-free bonus content on Spotify for the first time ever, on Apple Podcasts, wherever. The technology is so much better than it used to be. The payment stuff is handled safely, instantly. And why not support journalism? Why not support our journalism so that we can keep investigating and publishing these stories that you would not know about if we did not take these risks, if we did not invest in them, if we were not backed by you to do this stuff. CanadaLand.com slash join. Thank you. Forget that climate change is actually what we're talking about. Breathe in, breathe out, and just forget all the preconceptions you have to its dullness. And think about if I came to you with a story pitch, and I promised that this story promised to impact every person in the world. Hundreds of thousands of people would die every single year if we ignore it. Big corporations have been deliberately hiding information from the public and manipulating the media to hide the story, and governments for decades have chosen to side with industry and regional interests to ignore the burgeoning problem. And now, we have a chance to make it not so bad. This story has fucking everything. Corruption, abuse of power, social justice issues. And at the core of it, action is a matter of morality about who we are as human beings and if we actually care about one another. If I pitch you that story, are you going to be like, that's such a yawn? <laughs> if, you, if you pitched me that story in 1980, holy shit, stop the presses. That's an amazing story. I think part of the problem is, is that I have been hearing that story my entire life. And, you know, the thing about news is that it kind of has to be news. Yeah. I know that I don't believe and I feel a bit stubborn and angry that I think we've wasted a lot of time mm -hmm. by telling me that, like, if I stop buying Big Macs and styrofoam containers, that's going to make a difference. It's actually killed my buy-in, you know? Yeah. I guess I started in the same place as you. And I decided to go get my master's in climate and energy policy because it was like the only thing I knew that would force me to learn about this in like a structured way and so I could move on. And I think along the way, a lot of the information I've learned has helped me get past it. You know, both as a news consumer and a news producer, it's changed how I think about it because it's not just that it's a problem, it's about every aspect of how we live our lives. And so what I'm hoping you're maybe game for is me walking you through some of the stuff I've learned over the past few years through school and through reporting. And maybe I can help you and our listeners. I hope I can get them past those mental blocks that we have. I want to show you that this is the coolest time to be engaged in this story. And that in my view, this is the most interesting point in human history because we've never faced a problem like this. So are you game for me to at least try this? Yeah, I'm here and I'm open. I'm here for it. So let's get into it. Class is now in session. Let's start with psychology. What your brain actually hears when you listen to standard climate change reporting. On this Wednesday night, a critical point at the climate summit. The draft decision released today calls on countries to step up their emissions cutting targets by 2022. As the COP26 climate summit enters its final days, a reality check. 
Even with the latest pledges, the world is still a long way from reaching its climate goals. I think here we're kind of dealing with one of the fundamental problems I have with this. And and this isn't about my cynicism. This is about my idealism. The conceit of news that we as a human species need to be in control of our fate and make decisions collectively, but we can only make those decisions as good decisions with good information. And the job of the news is to give people that good information to make good decisions with. That idealism is challenged by this issue. I do think that's the hope that most journalists have, but it's definitely not that simple either, especially when it comes to climate change, because our brains are just so poorly evolved to deal with a threat like this. We're programmed to think about the threats that are here and now because evolutionarily that just made more sense. And we get overwhelmed when we start hearing about the magnitude of the problem. Peraspen Stoknes is a Norwegian psychologist and economist, and he's one of the leading global researchers on this convergence of climate change and psychology. And he calls this overwhelming feeling apocalypse fatigue, which I'm sure we are all dreadfully aware of, especially now because of the pandemic. And he basically contends with your assumption that knowledge promotes changes in actions because he says raw data on its own does not easily give meaning. And so Climate denial has been tarred and feathered as a dirty word for people who don't accept climate science. But in reality, in the study of our own psychology, Stokenes explains that it's actually a huge spectrum. And for the most part, we're all in some level of denial because we can know about climate change. And by continuing to live our lives the same way we always have, despite that new knowledge, it is a form of denial. It's a form of us pushing away that very difficult information. It's the premise for everything you're talking about. Just like if you're a cancer patient and uh, somebody has told you, oh, you've got six months left to live. And uh, if you have to think about that all the time, then those six months would be quite lousy. So sometimes we need denial in order to be just to forget that uncomfortable knowledge. The problem, of course, is that if it stays there, like a fixed, frozen kind of knowledge, so... You're not in denial if you can kind of visit it and then move out of it and go back, visit it. So you weave that disturbing knowledge into your life somehow. Denial refers to the situation where there is a pretty solid wall or heavy carpet (laughs) under which you put all that knowledge and you hardly ever go looking for it. So you tend to forget that you know what you know. Yeah, I mean, I think I get that. It feels similar to me to like... I know that one day I will die. Contending with awareness of your mortality, it's amazing to watch people like actually grapple with that because all the rest of us have just filed that away. We're not in denial of that. We know it's going to happen, but what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. It doesn't really change the next episode of Canada Land. <laughs> well, and it's true. And I mean, I think just like death, a lot of people can live with different levels of acceptance of death. Some people really are in denial that they will die one day. And so the same way that some people are unable to visit that thought of imminent death one day, so are people dealing with climate change. A lot of people can know it, accept it as true, and then just never come to the implications or never come to the understandings about it and really just put it away on the shelf. It reinforces the fatigue. Okay, I know that the difference between my eventual demise and this is that there actually technically is something to be done. And the torturous thing about climate change is that we are still in these last few years where there is a window where it is completely practically possible that if we radically changed our behavior en masse as a planet, 
we actually could pull ourselves back from the brink. It is possible, but where you lose me is the idea that this is something that um, this cult of the individual, if we all just as individuals start acting differently. Yeah, I, I definitely understand what you mean about personal actions having such an emphasis. And that's important in the psychological context because people end up feeling personal guilt as a result of not taking action or not taking what they see as enough action. And that guilt and anxiety then builds and it makes things worse. And the reality is that we do have some power here. How we travel and how we heat our homes are significant sources of emissions. However, we obviously need government support to make wholesale changes. Not everyone can afford to change their furnace or you know, buy a new car. But Catherine Hayhoe is a Canadian climate scientist who lives and works in Texas. But she might well be one of the most respected voices on climate change in the world. And this is what she had to say about personal responsibility in a presentation that she did with the New York City Library. Well, Tia, you and I are both on Twitter. And some of you might listening might also be too. And so you know that there is one of the hottest places where people cannot give up the so-called debate. Is it up to individuals to change their lifestyles and through sacrifice to fix climate change? Or is it up to system-wide solutions at the levels of governments, states, companies, large organizations? This debate will never end, but I have an answer to it. My answer is yes. <laughs> And that is because it is literally up to all of us. What is a system made up of other than people? So, of course, people have to be involved in the change because otherwise the system will not change. Here's my problem with that. I don't think I need to be kind of like some kind of advocate for this capitalistic competitive system in order to recognize that I live in a capitalistic competitive system. For me, as an individual, to make sacrifices like uh, I'm not going to drive or I'm not going to fly. Mm -hmm. I agree. If everybody made that decision, it would have an impact, but we have to recognize that there is, I'm putting myself at a disadvantage, right? I'm incurring costs and I'm setting up obstacles, which is a reason why I don't think it'll ever reach critical mass. It's really something for the privileged, Yeah. but that would only work if there was critical mass. And I think that's not going to happen. Okay. What's interesting about the psychology behind this and what Catherine Hayhoe talks about is that we're super self-obsessed. And it's awkward that we're so selfish and we don't like to admit that, but it can have two positive effects. And that is that whatever action you can take, whatever you can afford, it does allow the person to feel more empowered regardless of the emissions impact of it. It makes you feel like you are taking as much action as you can. And so from a psychological standpoint, it actually combats and is the strongest thing you can do to combat that apocalypse fatigue, which is like where we started. And the second thing is that it also creates over time social and cultural norms because we're obsessed with keeping up appearances and doing what everyone else is doing. So if everyone else is composting and biking to work or driving an EV and heating their homes with renewable energy, eventually that becomes the norm. And bizarrely, people who know I report on climate change will like if they went on a vacation, walk up to me and apologize for having taken a flight and stuff. And that is not something I have personally ever shamed anyone for. But it's almost like they know that I've limited my emissions as much as I can and therefore shamed and embarrassed themselves. And it's a reaction they have. And it's super fascinating to watch 
like these psychological processes happen in real time in front of me. <laughs> You're making this is the argument in favor of this is the argument in favor of a virtue signal. It's like virtue signaling is a public good, is a social good, and shame. And I look like like because I'm usually not into the government controlling my behavior. I'm like, well, what controls do we have? And yeah, like we can shame the fuck out of people. So well, it's not even know, intentional maybe- though, right? Like it just happens. Like that I make these choices and that my friends are aware of them, all of a sudden they're ashamed of not doing it. And I, apologies, I wasn't trying to do that to anyone, but it's it's the result. And it's fascinating <laughs> that that's how our brains work. At least you're apologetic about it. I mean, a lot of a lot of people like are quite happy to lord over everybody else that they do. I mean, and it is something that maybe I can't say fuck you because like I'm privileged enough that I can make those same decisions. But I think that like the ability to make these decisions, it's not evenly distributed, right? It's not mm-hmm. equitable. The access to doing these things, the access to green products, is something that is within reach to some and not to others. But like, yeah, we can introduce more divisiveness and shame into into the public discourse. <laughs> who doesn't uh, around who green doesn't choices? Love it? Who doesn't love it? Yeah, that's a choice. That's on the menu. It's true. And I will say that, like, Catherine Hayhoe and Pressman Stokenay's knowing people's brains, they have a level of optimism that is not present in all people who study the human brain. Daniel Kahneman is the cognitive psychologist who won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2002. And he's largely seen as the father of behavioral economics, which is the study of, like, how our psychological tendencies distort all rational thought and decision making. And so he is much more pessimistic. He has said publicly that he doesn't think that we will actually meet the challenge that climate change poses in any kind of reasonable timeline. I'm on Team Kahneman so far. Mobilizing people to action, and in particular to costly action, involves emotion. And the problem is whether you can arouse emotions and... Global warming has a very frightening characteristic, which is that by the time it's obvious that we're in trouble, it may be too late to avert the trouble. So the cool thing about that clip is that it's from 2013, and things have changed a lot since 2013 because we are seeing the impacts now, really for the first time, I mean, over the last decade. So what is interesting is that this is the very moment that we are starting to get that emotion Kahneman is talking about to encourage action And people are, for the very first time, at least saying that climate change is the most important issue to them. It's just a matter of finding out whether or not their actions back that up. But, like, I don't know, just revisiting this question of action, how does that clarify for you anything about what to do? Yeah, and whether or not it's too late and whether we win or lose, I think, is normally how we talk about it, whether we will succeed or whether we will fail. And anyone who has taken any cognitive behavioral therapy will recognize that this is something called black and white thinking and something that should be avoided at all costs. It's not a matter of win or lose or fail or succeed. Climate change really isn't like that. It's a huge spectrum of outcomes. And so a few years ago, even, we were on track to warm the planet by four to six degrees. And now we're currently on about a three degree track. So is that a win? I mean, God, no. However, it is better. And to say that it isn't better is just not honest. And so when we hear about the one and a half degrees at COP26, we end up talking about this win-lose thing as well. And I think if we only think about it in that paradigm, then people tune out. Because 
they're convinced we will lose. But what that misses is that every tenth of a degree matters and that that's one thing the IPCC reports make clear. Are you bored yet? <laughs> no, I'm not bored at all. <laughs> I guess I could sort of see this translated to narrative terms. Like if the movie is about a ragtag softball team that you can't help but root for against all odds, do they have to win for it to be a good movie? Right? Like, <laughs> I think that might have even made it even darker. <laughs> right? Like maybe they lose, but they find out that the real winning was in their hearts all along. Get out of that black and white thinking, Jesse. <laughs> we can still lose the planet, but it could be a decent story. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> okay. Let's move on to our second class for the day, history. Here I don't want to start with climate change. I want to start with COVID-19. The psychology lesson is important because it helps us to understand why people are so bad at preparing for these far-off threats with no clear arrival date. But when it comes to governments, they're supposed to make the tough decisions in the public interest when individuals aren't designed to make the changes needed. The pandemic offers a good example of how often that falls apart, because here's a clip from Barack Obama circa 2014. There may and likely will come a time in which we have both an airborne disease that is deadly. And in order for us to deal with that effectively, we have to put in place an infrastructure, not just here at home, but globally, that allows us to see it quickly, isolate it quickly, respond to it quickly. How do you argue with that? I like how we've moved from one intractable permanent nightmare (laughs) to the next by way of illustration. But like, you know, it actually makes me interesting to go back and see, did anybody cover that? Was there any like really big journalistic take saying there's going to be a huge pandemic and the world isn't ready for it? Uh, and, And my guess is that probably somebody did write that story. Vox did. I would guess that most editors were like, hey, that story is probably pretty boring. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but one wonders, like, okay, that's cool. Yeah. But did journalism win or fail? What What is that an example of? Well, it's definitely a failure, and I don't think, personally, it doesn't fill me with a lot of hope. But what it does fill me with is, like, this thirst for accountability, because we're the media. Governments are supposed to be informed and rise above all those psychological tendencies we were talking about. And they're supposed to do what's right, and they're supposed to fill in where we fail. And they didn't do that. But we also failed to hold them accountable because of just how long this problem has been known. Listen to this reading that we did. It's from the Alberta Legislature's Hansard. My questions today are to the Minister of Environment. The release of massive amounts of carbon dioxide into Earth's atmosphere is generally considered to be a major cause of the so-called greenhouse effect. And because Alberta has a chance to truly lead the way, I'd like to know what initiative made-in-Alberta approach to combat the greenhouse effect the minister is sending with this government's representatives to that conference in Toronto next week. Can I tell you why I find that record so interesting? It was said by NDP MLA Derek Fox, but not recently. It was said in 1988. It was the first record I could find in the Alberta legislature's Hansard of climate change being talked about. Environment Canada put climate change on the government's top priority list in 1983. And so is it any wonder that teenagers are in the streets now outraged? 
that we haven't managed to fix this problem yet. This is the biggest case of government negligence that has ever happened. This isn't individually a liberal or conservative problem. They knew and they didn't do anything. Which is a hard thing for Canadian news outlets to turn into a news story, to publish a screed against a government of the day for doing what every single government has always done. That, I think, would be a tough story for Canadian outlets to, you know, get excited about. Yeah, I mean, it's true. They all have failed. But the thing is that, like, American outlets are way further ahead on documenting the inaction and, like, holding powers to account. And it's not just the government. It's also oil and gas companies. And so these companies actually went in and preyed on the lack of understanding. And our industry's tendency to do the two sides of everything they used that to manipulate the media and to manipulate the public since the late 1970s. Scientists at Exxon before it was Exxon Mobil were among the first to understand climate change science and its implications. And that was in 1977. And here in Canada, we're still barely doing rudimentary climate change coverage well. So I don't know where it is or how we get to the point where we're actually offering accountability as far as how we got here and whose failures it was, and who knowingly turned a blind eye. Sarah, I like this a bit more editorially because it involves naming and shaming individuals and uh, ruining people who've made terrible choices. You're getting closer to stuff that is within, like, our wheelhouse, if, if it's about, like, executives who knew stuff and then, like, willingly misled the public and governments that aided and abetted that. This needs to be something that doesn't just come up when we have record-breaking wildfires and droughts and yeah. heat waves like we did this summer, right? Like, that's the only time that we really get to climate change coverage or when, you know, COP26 happens to be on. Sarah, I feel like the problem that we're describing is bigger than a journalism problem. And it flummoxes and stymies me because it's the perfect problem. It's a problem that confounds all of our systems, all of our ideology, like... Systems is even too dry. Like, we have fundamental principles. Everything is based on this principle of, like, individual freedom. And individual freedom sucks as a means to deal with this. Democracy is an expression of our individual freedom, but our democracy does not give us an option at this moment to deal with it. We cannot vote for a solution to this problem. No politician has given us that option. Even if a politician did give us that option and formed government, their terms last for like four years, which is not enough time to actually make a change. And even if they had 20-year terms... We still have nation states. That's how the world is governed, is by countries which are carved up along geographic borders, which climate change does not give a fuck about. So you have a perfect problem here. We can look at it on the level of our brain chemistry, or we can look at it on the level of, like, history has resulted in us having these systems and methodologies and levers collectively at our fingertips, and none of them... None of them are equipped to deal with this. So is journalism equipped? Like, no, journalism is just the least of all the systems that, is there an interesting character? Do we have good video footage of this? Like, what's the arc? Like, who gives a shit? Like, that's the least <laughs> of our problems is that you can't turn this into a good podcast. I mean, you're not wrong. And this seems like a good segue from history class into political science. Oh, okay. <laughs> from the academic perspective, the most difficult public policy issues that we've faced prior to climate change are things like homelessness, public health emergencies like COVID, nuclear warfare, and all of these, and I love this, they call them wicked problems. They call, who call, 
wicked problems, brah. <laughs> Not that kind of wicked. But like that's what academics call it. Like this is called a It's called a wicked problem. Yes. I love that. I love it too. Okay, so these problems are considered wicked problems because they have a couple of characteristics. There's no end to the problem in sight. So with homelessness, say you solve homelessness tomorrow on the streets of Toronto, great. But tomorrow it could still just as easily become a problem again, right? So there's no end to it. There is no action that will, quote, solve it, but there are actions that will make it better or worse. And the problem is probably got its genesis in another problem altogether. So homelessness, again, having to do with a litany of other issues from socioeconomics to racial inequality problems, et cetera, et cetera. So those are wicked problems. And then they made a whole new category for climate change, which is called, get ready for it, super wicked problem. <laughs> It's just, it's a, <laughs> it's perfect, right? Wow. I always thought that the uh, the technical term for those were clusterfucks, but no, I, no, I no. actually prefer- Use your technical term dictionary, super wicked problem. Okay. So climate change is even more complicated because of the time delay and the looming deadline under which we must act. And it's worth noting that this is the most complicated problem that humanity has ever had to deal with. So that might seem depressing. But it is the ultimate test put to humanity. <laughs> I was the ultimate test to humanity, but we're so like selfish and we're so into this weird individualism thing that like to interpret that as like, I will succeed in this ultimate test to my humanity. No, humanity is all of us. And this has to be like dealt with for all of us. It doesn't matter if I change. Like, like this is what I feel it's like. It's really a case for government is, is what it is. This is why government exists, to fix these problems, right? Yeah. It, it, like, there's so many problems where, like, it's not up to you to, like, what is the ethics of, like, wearing a seatbelt or putting a seatbelt on your kid? Uh, and, like, like, no, you have to fucking do it, right? So you had me at earth burning and molten lava, right? Like, I, like you, <laughs> you had me decades ago that, like, we need to completely change the way the world works if we're going to avoid catastrophe. And I have been ready, and I kind of suspect that everyone is kind of ready, or like most people, like a critical mass is ready, to fucking get in line. So what do I mean? I mean that like if the government were to say, hey, uh, sorry, everybody, but from now on, there's a 300% tax on commercial flight, mm -hmm. right? And then it's not like I have to accept that I'm going to be at a disadvantage in my career and in my leisure time from everybody else. And I'm going to have to be this martyr because like we're all fucking walking the line. I talked to an MP, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, and he is a liberal MP, but he's also generally been very no BS about how our government system just isn't really well equipped to deal with this problem. I think this is the constant problem in our politics, right? And it's the pursuit of winning elections at the expense of long-term sustainable policy action towards right answers. And we see it not only in relation to climate policy, but I've been very vocal on drug policy too. And even though public health experts and police chiefs and everyone with lived experience and anyone who's taken a serious look at drug policy says, we need to reform our drug laws, politicians are the last to come to the table. On climate, it's not dissimilar in that the public really needs to change their mind for politicians to get on board, right? And so you go from where we were when Stéphane Dion tried to propose a green shift, which was a very smart policy. And it was not viable policy at that time with him as the leader. And we move forward to 2015, where we are 
basically stealing an idea that worked in BC to say, this idea was politically possible in BC, let's make it politically possible at the federal level. And it wasn't easy. I mean, we went through years of the conservatives banging away at us for it, right? In a really irrational way. Sarah, we need like a, man, this is going to come back to haunt me. (laughs) We need an authoritarian government on this policy. Like, this is like where I kind of like, here, I'm with Justin Trudeau when he said like, oh, he envies, he, he walked this back later, but he said that he envies China. Like, why can't Canada be like China in a good way? You know what I mean? Like, this is somewhere where I actually think that they could go way further than they're going to go. And I kind of feel like people would just eat it. China's an interesting case because everyone loves to demonize China because they still burn coal and because they are the largest annual emitter now. But, like, they also have a population four times the size of the United States. So is that really surprising? Like, not really. But even during the last election campaign, the conservatives in their climate plan have the words, we will stand up for Canada to the world by insisting that major polluters like China clean up their act. We won't hurt Canada's growth while the worst climate offenders do nothing. Do people really think that the negotiators at these international conferences like somehow missed that China was the biggest emitter? Like... They're also home to a third of the world's renewable energy. They're the largest adopter of EVs. And and it comes from that. Again, we're not advocating for us to become an authoritarian government, but that central control obviously gives you the tools to make the change we need. So it's, it's an interesting case, and it's interesting to see the two different styles of government handle this issue. When I'm confused, I, I have, I'm on a different <laughs> script than you. Are we not advocating for a more authoritarian government? I thought we were totally doing that. Uh, no, that isn't actually the uh, the goal here. No violent overthrow of government is being endorsed at this time specifically. <laughs> I think that you can sort of see the brewing fight that there are those who are willing to like go to rather extreme measures um, in the face of what they see as an encroaching globalism. It's so funny, mm-hmm. the dirty word of globalism with its anti-Semitic connotations when like, I mean, just to use words like for what they actually mean, like, yeah, we do need to have a globalist approach to this, right? Yeah, the collective action is obviously needed. There is no other way. And it's the only thing that's allowed us to get as far as we have. And China's interesting to come back to because where it comes to climate change, it really, I think, borders on xenophobia because it's like, oh, they're evil and therefore we don't have to act. Like, that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the Paris Agreement because in that agreement, what all negotiators from around the world agreed to was something called common but differentiated responsibility, which basically means like us rich countries that developed on the back of fossil fuel emissions. We have to do this first in order for it to be fair for developing countries like China, like India. And so China's net zero target is 2060, not 2050. And we can argue about whether or not that's fair or not, I guess. But Globally, our representatives have agreed that that is fair. And so we have to do our part first. My understanding of that is like China would say like, fuck you guys. You spent the last like 200 years unfettered burning of whatever you could burn, whatever you could dig up and burn. And you got rich and the American empire was built without anybody saying no, stop, no, stop. Now, just as we're getting our shit together oh, suddenly it's bad to do that. Well, fuck you. It does become a debate about what is fair, which brings us to our last class of the day, philosophy. 
Wow, you're you're really (laughs) holding back the sexy stuff. (laughs) Am I ever? Okay. I will never make the argument as eloquently as philosophy professor Steve Gardner at the University of Washington. Ethics concerns the way we value the world and our lives within it. It concerns what matters at the most fundamental level. And arguably the most central values here are around well-being, justice, fairness within societies, across societies, and across generations. So these are the fundamental questions around what matters and then what we should do about it. Climate change is fundamentally an ethical issue. We tend to prefer to talk about the science and the geopolitics and so on, but I think ethical values are right at the heart of what the issue is to such an extent that if we try to define the problem in other ways, in purely scientific or political terms, for example, we're at risk of trying to solve the wrong problem. I like that guy. That guy sounds good. I think it ends up coming back to where we started, is that often when we talk about climate change, if we think about it as a moral question, it becomes way too big. And then you become really frustrated that you don't have more power to change more things. And so we really put it away. But like Stokeness said at the beginning, If you consider yourself to be a person who values the lives of others across this country, around the world, and across generations, then despite the magnitude of this, we do have a responsibility to revisit that painful information periodically, check our own privilege, and each individual will then be responsible for deciding if their actions align with their morals, whatever those may be. If I'm hearing you right, what grabs you about this is it's like, Imagine one of those academic hypotheticals, but it's real. It's it's very real. Would you kill somebody to save a million people? That kind of shit uh, in some sort of imaginary scenario. Do you care about somebody you haven't met on the other side of the world? Like, I don't know, like all of these different scenarios where mm-hmm. we have to kind of think past our kind of like lizard brain emotional connections and more into like an intellectual and, and ethical understanding of what we owe each other. Exactly. And I guess you're coming out of an academic context of this, but you're also a journalist. So you're like, oh, this is this is hot. We can actually like put this into the real, into the practical. Well, and, and it, it really introduces the stakes, right? Like yeah. that's what I think this does is that it is that academic riddle. It is high stakes. Do we care enough about one another as humanity to actually act, even if it costs something to us personally today. There was a video that actually went viral during COP26, and it was the foreign minister of like a a tiny island nation called Tuvalu. His name was Simon Kofe, and he was standing in the water off the shore of one of the islands, and this land used to be dry, and now it is underwater. In Tuvalu, our islands are sacred to us. They contain the mana of our people. They were the home of our ancestors. They are the home of our people today. And we want them to remain the home of our people into the future. This is why this call to you from Tuvalu is not just a political statement. It is a call that reverberates from our eight islands and our 12,000 people to the international community. Yeah, imagining a man standing on water over his land that was washed away. And it's interesting that overblown emotional music because it is an emotional appeal. And music is like, I keep thinking about that Randy Newman song, like Louisiana, they're trying to wash us away. Yeah. 
and a song that puts you in the frame of mind of somebody who's like, they're trying to wash us away. And, and you know, knowing what we do about the fact that the hurricanes that keep drowning New Orleans and Louisiana are absolutely man-made mm-hmm. and they're trying to wash us away. It ain't journalism. It ain't storytelling. It's it's an emotional appeal. It's an ethical appeal. It is. It is absolutely that. And there's a reason I introduced all of these different frameworks for thinking about this problem, because when I hear him say 12,000 people, I try to pay attention to what's happening in my brain as I rationalize away my own actions as like, oh, it's just 12,000 people, like they'll move somewhere else. Or, oh, it's just 50,000 people, because guess what? Tuvalu is not the only country that is like looking at its complete demise, like the Marshall Islands, uh, Kiribati. They are actually buying up land in other countries to rehome their people in a new country. So like the stakes are very real. And I watch my own brain try to process that and rationalize away why my actions don't matter. I think, Sarah, like the challenge in making that the hook Mm -hmm. is that we're all so used to living on those terms in other ways. I've always kind of vaguely known that like there's something kind of obscene about how we live. We live this well because other people live so poorly. Mm -hmm. Now, there's other people who say, no, that's not true. It's it's not a zero-sum game. Our goal should be for everybody to have these comforts. But then you kind of know that's not possible. Mm-hmm. And all of these dynamics are just the way that we have always lived. We've accepted these terms. And, well, what does it matter if I change my behavior? It, it, my behavior doesn't make a difference to, to that other person suffering. It just means that I'll be suffering too. If that's an open, interesting hook of a question to you, I don't want to be a dick, but <laughs> – It's kind of like I know the answer to that question. Yeah. We are comfortable with rationalizing that. I think what's different about this moment is that while the impacts are the most dramatic in these island nations, the difference is going to be that it's also on our doorstep. Like the story I did a couple weeks ago about the First Nations being evacuated. If we actually are caring about reconciliation at this moment, as we claim to, Climate change is going to be an important part of that because Inuit communities, First Nation communities are going to be impacted first. And so it fits into all of that. And I'm thinking that we're at a point in time where it'll come close enough that we'll have to care, that we'll stop being able to push it off as something far in the distance. And while we don't need to remind people of the morality in every story we tell about climate change, I think it's important to remember that that is the framework inside what we're telling a story about, because I think it's important context. Maybe you can disagree about that. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah, I feel like I've been moved 180 degrees from my initial position and yet not at all. Your approach to this is thoughtful and does change my context for it and does have me contemplating this differently. But I'm just a vulgar creature of the newsroom Mm -hmm. and I end where I started. I'm open. Pitch me a story. Honestly, Jesse, if you're contemplating things differently, that's all I was really hoping for. But if going forward, we have this mutual understanding, then I think we can tell some really important and incredible stories. Like how about telling the story of this imminent war brewing between conservationists and climate activists? Because as it turns out, there's a lot of climate change policies that really fly in the face of what environmentalists stand for. So who wins out? We shall see. 
Or how about the story of the Canadian cities that are likely to become ghost towns as they run out of water in this country? That's pretty wild. And how the trees will kill us all. Sarah, why didn't you just start with those? I'm good with any of those stories. Let's do them. (laughs) Okay, let's do it, Jesse. Stay tuned. That is your Canada Land. If you liked it, please support us. The clock is ticking on this year's crowdfunding campaign, and then we stop asking, and this is when we need it. Click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Email me. I'm at jesse at canadaland.com. This episode is produced by our new senior producer, Sarah Larniuk and Tristan Capicchione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Our theme music is by So Called. Check out our website. Uh, there is a really interesting episode of Commons on the town of Asbestos, Quebec. I did not know the things that I heard. Disturbing, scary things in this episode. Uh, check out the backbench. Check out Wag the Dog. We are publishing great stuff on all cylinders. Canadaland.com. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, please support us. In France, in the 13th century, a teenager ascends the throne. He seems calm, collected, and as it happens, drop-dead gorgeous. But looks can be deceiving, and no one is ready for the death, destruction, and chaos that lie ahead. Step inside the reign of one of the Middle Ages' most cold-blooded rulers on This Is History presents The Iron King, available wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.